0: いらのなでたお Na na na
1: Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. And of course it is a very special episode tonight as we are celebrating our very first ever Kaiju Christmas. I am your host, as always, Elwood Jones, from the Dexity DVD Help. And joining me, of course, is my co-host and partner in crime, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello, uh, thank you very much. <laughs> some reason I Got had, my name right. I had to pause <laughs> there for a minute. It's like I, would, I felt myself like saying Stephen Lever again, and it's like I had to pause and just like correct myself there. So, uh, But obviously, Stephen, tonight we are looking at kaiju movies again. And this is a very special episode as we put it out to our audience to pick our very first film, which we look at for Kaiju Christmas. Thank you to everyone who obviously voted. If you voted via Facebook or Twitter, we had some great responses in. And the winner was, of course, Destroyer Monsters, which is going to be our featured film for tonight's episode. And I'm very excited about it because it is, of course, one of my favorite Godzilla movies of all time. And Stephen, I am sure is absolutely thrilled to be once again talking about giant monster movies. But
0: well, we're in luck because it's one I'd seen before, and it's one I like. So uh, <laughs> the, the the gods were with us, the gods of kaiju.
1: It was it was looking scary for a minute. It was looking like we were going to be looking at Godzilla vs Megalon, which which had me concerned. I personally voted for War of the Gargantus, um and it seemed for a while that uh, Godzilla vs Megalon was going to be what the people wanted us to watch, and then suddenly uh, Show Monsters pulled ahead. So, um, but thank you everyone to obviously voted, and we will obviously be getting into that in the second half of the show. Before we obviously get onto that, I mean, we're now coming to the end of another year of cinema, and especially for Asian cinema in particular. This year has been particularly strong with companies like Netflix and Amazon in particular really pushing uh, the focus on Asian cinema. Cinema. I mean, we saw Amazon pick up Park Chan, uh Wook's *The Handmaiden*. Uh, at the same time, they've also picked up the Shaw Brothers catalogue. Certainly, when we look at like Netflix, Netflix has not only gone for their own branded Asian drama series. Has been a really great, especially for fans like ourselves of obviously Asian cinema, to see Asian cinema once again riding high on this uh, sort of wave of popularity that only seems to be on the increase, which at the moment, especially with uh, sites such as like Crunchyroll, High Five uh, doing fantastic business and certainly on the anime side of things really bringing across some interesting titles. Uh, at the same time we've got channels like Viceland, which are also now bringing across anime blocks and um, pushing Asian cinema and just all round it seems to be this this increase of interest in Asian cinema, which is of course fantastic to see. But I mean Stuart, I mean, what's obviously been your sort of favourite picks of this year? I mean, is there, what would you say have been like the films that have really sort of stood out to you? Because mm-hmm. I've shamefully have been playing catch up most of this year and watching stuff that I should have been watching uh, in previous years. So I've missed out on a lot of current stuff. But obviously, yourself, you're part of Eastern Kick, you know, the premier Asian cinema uh, website, film review site, shall I say. So I mean, what has obviously been holding your interest this year?
0: Okay, well I've got a collection of things from sort of around the place. Um I haven't been um maybe as on top of releases. So last year I felt was really, really strong and, and, and this year due to various reasons I haven't been on top of it. But there have been a handful of films that have impressed me. Pang Ho Chung's Love of the Cuff, which is one of the f- few examples of the third film of a trilogy which is actually stronger than the second Um, very charming romantic comedy um, starring Miriam Young and Sean Yu Um, the previous films, Love and a Puff and I can't remember what the second one was called Oh, Love and the Buff follow these two characters through their trials and tribulations and Love of the Cuff, I didn't like the second film, um, Love and the Buff I thought it was really disappointing but this one's waited a while and it's really really entertaining. The other film which I'm just going on about all over the place although it is a little divisive I notice is The Villainess starring Kim Ok Bin which is just a wonderful visual treat for lovers of action movies. Is it the most original thing in the world? Probably not but it's an incredibly stylish and fun action film that's got a to carry out logical conclusion to certain events which many films would start, steer away from which I guarantee any kind of western remake wouldn't do but I'm not going to spoil it now um, my favourite film of the year was from Thailand um, pun Priyad's Bad Genius which is a caper movie set in the world of High school exams. It sounds rather banal, but it's brilliantly executed, brilliantly acted, and I'm a little biased because I was lucky enough to meet the director and interview him a few weeks ago, and 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 the the man's a legend in of himself. But that 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 that's my uh, that's my film of the year. Also, um, obviously, Takashi Mikey had a couple of films out this year. I'm not going to go for his hundredth film, Blade of the Immortal, but I really enjoyed The Mole Song, Hong Kong Capriccio, which is a sequel to his film from uh, three or four years ago called The Mole Song. It's a ridiculous, over-the-top comedy in the best random stylings of Mikey at his greatest. Um, I really found that hugely enjoyable. Um, you mentioned the streaming services and you you obviously mentioned about things that were, that were picked up like the handmaiden by, um, I think it's at Amazon. Yeah. But Netflix went one higher and actually produced and distributed, um, the fabulous Bong John Ho's Okya, which uh, sort of a delightful sort of fable to, conservation and vegetarianism I suppose um, with his favorite some of his favorite Western actresses and actors like Tilda Swinton but and Jake Gyllenhaal but really entertaining really enjoyable also caused a bit of a fuss in um Cannes for being a Netflix film and has probably changed all the rules about how Cannes deals with films um, and just two DVDs and Blu-rays, which were released this year, uh, because I do feel quite often all we ever get is horror films and uh, martial arts movies. But uh, I think it was Eureka um, put out Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Creepy earlier in the year. Really interesting thriller film by, again, one of my favourite directors and someone that we're going to talk about In the future, I guarantee it. And the same director's film, (laughs) a much older film, um, Pulse, which I know that both I and um, Zoe were going on about in our Halloween episode but never actually getting to talk about, was given an Arrow film release earlier this year, which for me was one of the most exciting things ever because I never thought that would get a Western release. I've got a Japanese DVD I got Probably about 15 years ago now, and to f- see that in pristine Blu-ray with a with a decent set of extras is an absolute pleasure. So that's that's my year in review.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, Okja, I've still yet to see. Um, obviously, I was at, just obviously being a, a Netflix exclusive, but it makes me kind of makes me in, interested to see it as well. I mean, I wasn't a huge fan of his most popular f- sort of film today. Uh, obviously, The Host. Uh, which I know a lot of people really raved about, but I never got what the appeal was. Obviously, us being Brits means that we have never seen Snowpiercer, because it had one showing at uh, Edinburgh Film Festival, and it's never been seen since on these shows. Um, do you think that the success of Ogja means that we might eventually see a release of Snowpiercer? I... Can only hope so. I um, mean, I was lucky
0: enough. I had to go all the way to Hong Kong to watch it, which is a bit extravagant, isn't it? <laughs> and, uh, I didn't only go to watch that. I just that just happened, and I've got the German Blu-ray of it, which um, which is fine. But I d- I just find it really weird. And I was hoping. I think we spoke about this before. Okya came out. Uh, I was kind of hoping that maybe that would, two things would come out of that. One is we'd maybe maybe finally get. Snowpiercer, although if it's under the auspices of Harvey, we might never see it, I suppose. And I was also, you know, I'm also excited to see a a premier Asian director getting a international platform like Netflix. So we can only hope that that one of one of the others, probably one of the other Korean directors, gets a chance to do something like that because I believe it was fairly successful. Um, I'm I have mixed feelings about it but I think it's an important step for Asian cinema to just have that platform.
1: Certainly, Villainess has been popular when we threw it out to our listeners to obviously pick uh, their favourite films of this year. Uh, certainly, Villainess has has frequently come up and it's easy to understand why. Um, certainly, it's also one that's really worth picking up at the moment, especially on uh, Amazon, as you can pick it up really cheap. So, uh, definitely one to grab while you can. Um, a Taxi Driver, also got a mention as well as uh, vampire Cleanup uh, department
0: yeah I've seen Vampire Cleanup Department um, if you it's like a it's a sort of a modern reimagining of the, the sort of Mr. Vampire type films um, with Baby John as the main star so if you're like your good looking young Hong Kong actors that might be one for you I, I found it interestingly diverting.
1: Okay. I'm I'm now starting to realise why Kim recommended it for me. Uh, when I posed post this question, she actually uh, was one of the films that she's recommended I watched. Certainly it's on the list of films that I've sort of missed this year. I think this year I've been mainly playing catch-up, although I did actually catch Sion uh, Sono's tag uh, when it came out on DVD recently, which... Uh, while it's certainly not on the same level as the likes of Tokyo Tribe or Why Don't You Play in Hell is still interesting enough to make it worth a watch. Um certainly he's really got a fascination with murdering schoolgirls, it would seem. Um and certainly the opening featuring the evil dead style wind that uh randomly cuts this school bus full of uh of uh schoolgirls in, in half being like up there with uh, Suicide Club for just the sheer amount of people he can eviscerate in one scene. Um, the actual mechanics of the film, I think, let it down slightly as it uh, it, it felt like uh, if you're having these complex like butterfly effect um, style mechanics in your universe, it probably isn't the best idea to have a schoolgirl explain it um, as it doesn't seem to really sort of gel, but it's a film with some interesting moments um, throughout and I think it's one certainly worth watching, especially if you are a fantasy on solo. I think there's certainly much to enjoy, even though it's probably not his best work to date.
0: Yeah, I, I, I saw it a while ago and I've, 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 I liked it enough to pick it up when it came out this year, as you say. Um, I think it so it's from his, his really busy year. He had a couple of years back where he did seven or eight films at the same time, which are all slowly seem to be coming over to these shores in various ways and forms. I, I, I recently caught up with anti-porno, which is another one of those films, um, which we might talk about another time. Um, but they both to me have the same flaw that they seem to be wanting to, uh, place a critical commentary on something. So in Tag's case, maybe the, the the depiction of women in in certain sorts of films and in Anti Porno even more so it's 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 trying to be a critique on 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 romantic pornography films from the seventies and um it ends up being everything it I think it's trying to criticise. It seems a little um They both seem a little self-defeating, but they're both entertaining enough and
1: and they've got some fun moments. Yeah. Um, Also, uh, Mumbai justified its subscription fee for myself as they showed the complete uh, Dead Alive trilogy from Takashi Miike, um, which meant, especially for myself, I finally got to see the third film in the trilogy, which has been notoriously difficult uh, in the UK to get hold of. And... Originally it was going to be released through Tartan, who released, obviously, Dead or Alive and Dead or Alive 2 Birds. Um, and then, unfortunately, the company went under before they were able to release uh, Dead or Alive Final. And I have to say that while a lot of people really rave about Dead or Alive 2, it really did nothing for me. It felt, in many ways, like Beat Takashi's uh, Solentine or Boiling Point. Those sort of Yakuza movies he did were... It's more about these characters going on a journey or their interactions themselves than the actual, the film that you expect to be getting. Dead or Alive 3 is wonderfully bonkers and I think the closest we we're ever going to see to Cassie Miike doing a Blade Runner-style movie. If it wasn't for the penis robot at the end, I think it would have been, I would have rated it a lot higher. Certainly by the end of Dead or Alive uh, final. It just really felt like he didn't know what to do with it. He'd come up with this concept to these his two lead actors battling each other across space and time uh, over the course of these three films. And he got to the end of uh, final and he just had no idea what to to do. So he basically thought, oh, you know, just giant penis robot. That, that's a great way to end this film. And uh, I think for any other director, we would have lambasted it more. But because it's Takashi Miki, we just give him this wide breadth just to throw randomness at the screen. And we go, yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, are you a fan of the Dead or Alive film, Stephen? Or
0: well, I think we we spoke about it a couple of a few episodes ago because I picked up the Blu-ray box set. Was it that? Um, I think it's Arrow again put out because I'd never seen them, and I have still only watched the first one. Although I enjoyed the first one <laughs> hugely in terms of its the the opening the opening sequence is just astonishing. You know that that, that if anyone calls wants to call Mikey a hack show him that, show him what he can do with cinema. It's got some disturbing stuff in it, and it's got an ending that you won't predict. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it's, um, I, th- I think it's fascinating. And I, will, I will watch the other two, although you've made me... um. Uh, you may have put it down the list a bit by having a go at the last <laughs> one a little bit there.
1: No, I mean, the, the last one I really, I really enjoyed. I mean, I, the last one I would say is... It's not as bonkers as the first one, but it's it's as fun. Um, the second one, I know in Love Box I seem to be in this very small minority of people who perhaps didn't enjoy it as much as everyone else apparently did. I don't know whether my recommendations ever take off, but certainly the original Dead or Alive, it's essentially Takashimike doing heat, uh the Michael Mann movie, but you know, better and more enjoyable and a hell of a lot shorter. Uh but I mean this is a movie where you see people snorting like <laughs> meters of coke in one scene, there's people having throat slits in front of buildings and having exploding stomachs of noodles flying at the screen, and this is all in the first, what, 10 minutes of the film? He, like, throws more violence and gore at the screen than most directors manage in the whole runtime of their film, and he's only really just getting started, because this is, like, really Mike at the height of his powers in the outlaw period. I mean, it's just, I think the only thing that's above it really would be if you looked at uh, Ishii the Killer. I think Ishii the Killer is the only film in his filmography which Pat To tops it. Uh, maybe to an extent his Masters of Horror episode imprint. But um, yeah, D- Dead or Alive just remains his bonkers entry on his resume. And certainly if you want to see Mike at the height of his past in that outlook bit, then Dead or Alive is definitely the way to go and I think if you watch that one, then definitely check out the other two because they're perhaps not as bonkers, but uh, the two leads that he obviously features are just so charismatic and interesting mm-hmm. to watch that it's just uh, you just all the more grateful for the fact he carried them across for the other two films and just made uh, some just this trilogy of really some sort of interesting cinema. But other than that, I mean, I've still got to watch Strange Busan. I've still got to watch Soul Station. You know, Christmas is coming
0: up. Maybe I'll get them scratched off over then. So, yeah, no. Twenty percent t- t- excellent. Soul Station, excellent. Um, I think you mentioned the Handmaiden. I sh- thought it was okay. Um, so, it's for, from some of the um, it, 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 certainly, if if we consider things that sort of coming out here in the West and certainly in the UK, there's a strong selection. Um, I'm, I'm just not. I just don't know what's coming next.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's always hard to say what's going to come next because, I mean, something, I mean, if we look at Tag, for example. I mean, that was released 2015 in, um, obviously, it's it's native country. And then it's, what, 2017 when we finally get a release for it. It's a little frustrating. I mean, we do obviously have the promise of Ip Man 4 coming out from Donnie Yen. Um, I mean, are you, are you excited for another Ip Man?
0: Um, I thought the first Ip Man was a lot of fun. I thought yeah. the second Ip Man was um, fantastic until the end. I went to see the third Ip Man at the cinema in 3D, and I was taken out of it a bit by Mr. Tyson's appearance, although it made some sense, but it felt like it felt like a film too far. I have no desire to see an It Man 4, um, especially when there's a perfectly good there's another it Man film. Is it Herman Yao's one with um, Anthony Wong in it, which is actually even better than the other two <laughs> in terms of a film. So, no, I'm not, I'm not overly excited, but Donnie Yen has become a a, a, a very watchable performer and probably with age has become a bit more of a, 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 screen presence as an actor. So yeah, I'll, I'll watch it, but I'm not, it's not something I was screaming out for.
1: I know. I mean, I mean, we do seem to be in this period of uh, exploitation movies, uh, which I would have thought would have uh, died to death by now, but I think, thanks to Tony Yang, keep making these Ip Man movies, It somehow keeping the whole trend going. Um, but, I, this is something I don't, when I hear obviously Anthony Wong playing the role, I'm not sure obviously whether, how that would actually work out, because I mean, he's not obviously a traditional martial artist, so how does it obviously work out in terms of the role of him playing Ip Man? Um, it's, 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 it's
0: more of a dramatic thing. Um, it, it's at the end of his, it's almost a more of a tale of him and his wife's relationship, which is, um, which is hinted at, I think in, uh, in, in, in the Donnie Yen vehicles. Um, but it's, it's, it's Herman Yao, you know, he of, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, and with Anthony Wong, the, uh, God, what's it called? The one with the Ebola syndrome. You know, it's that pairing, but they've all both grown up and they've uh, they've made something else. But you know, it's a charming lovely film rather than a a martial arts centred drama. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, that was obviously 2017. I mean, obviously if uh, there's been something that uh, caught your interest and that we haven't obviously discussed, please let us know. Uh, you can let us know either on the Twitter, which is, uh, at Asian Cinema, sorry, you can let us know on the Twitter, which is at AC Film Club. Uh, you can also let us know on Facebook, and we are also got the email as well, which is, uh, AC Film Club at yahoo.com. Um... We're going to take a quick break. When we return, though, we're going to be looking at our featured film for this evening, which, of course, is the Godzilla classic, Destroy All Monsters. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Recall Podcast here at ThatMomentIn.com. I'm your host, Laverne, and on each episode, myself, along with a guest, we'll be talking about an iconic scene from a classic movie. Which films will we be discussing? Well, that's all up to you. Because before each episode airs, we are going to be giving you a poll of great flits to choose from. Whichever one gets the most votes, that's the one we'll be talking about. So listen to the Cinema Recall podcast on the site ThatMomentIn.com or on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Podomatic, or SoundCloud. Thank you very much, and hope you enjoy it. Idle. And we're back. Uh, you're, so you're still listening to the Asian Cinema Film Club. Tonight is of course the very first inaugural Kaiju Christmas and we are going to be looking at Destroyer Monsters. So thank you again to everyone who voted and chose the very first selection for Kaiju Christmas. And uh yeah, Destroyer Monsters is an absolutely fantastic choice to kick off. Uh kick off kaiju christmas really um before we obviously get into the film though if uh, you haven't done already please do follow us on facebook we are on twitter uh we are on instagram you can also get a complete archive uh, via our website the link is available in the section below we are also on our, uh also part of the thatmomentin.com podcast network uh, so if you go to thatmomentin.com you can find our full archive on there as well um also if you're listening to us on Podomatic or iTunes or Stitcher wherever you happen to be listening to us please leave us a rating leave us some comments uh it's all appreciated and certainly helps to get the show uh, out there and expand the audience uh, listener base and we appreciate everyone who's uh, obviously been supporting the show since we started it's uh, been an absolute joy to bring these episodes and certainly share our love of Asian cinema and uh, expand our own interests in in this world and uh, provide this sort of introduction to Asian cinema. So we appreciate everyone who's obviously uh, supported the show so far and uh, hopefully you continue to do so. But obviously, Destroy Monsters, this is, as I said before, this is one of my favourite Godzilla movies of all time. And this was the ninth Godzilla movie to be released. And at the time, it was seen as a way to mothball the series, as the interest in the Godzilla franchise had been declining slowly, and To basically saw this as a way to send the series out on a high. And uh, it went on to obviously become one of the most popular Godzilla movies of all time, and uh, basically went on to spawn another 29 movies uh, in its wake. Now, Released in 1968, this is the last film to feature all five, all of the Godzilla Godfathers. Uh, in uh, Japan, it's also known as Attack of the Marching Monsters. And basically the film sees all the monsters of the world being rounded up and put onto, uh, this island known as Monster Island. And here, the monsters can live in peace and, you know, God, uh, Japan doesn't have to worry about rampaging monsters coming along and destroying everything. And this is all going great until a mysterious mist covers the island and causes all the monsters to disappear. Um, as we soon find out that the monsters are now under the control of a race of mind controlling aliens known as Kallax, who have got their sights set on destroying all human life using the giant monsters they now have under their control. Stephen, I mean, this is the second kaiju movie I've made you watch since we started this podcast. Uh, you said you've seen this one, obviously, before when we talked about it a little earlier in the show. I mean, what's your sort of opening thoughts on Destroy Our Monsters? I mean, how did you find this one? Well, actually, it's not only
0: one of have seen before. it's one I've actually reviewed before over on Guilo Ramblings. And so, uh, spoilers, I really liked it. <laughs> I found it really enjoyable. Um, the first time I watched it, of course, I had no idea who all these other monsters were. I knew about Godzilla, but yeah. all the others. So it was kind of interesting in the two years since I last watched it that my own kaiju movie knowledge has been built up. Maybe not to your level, sir, but, but <laughs> considerably. So it made, um, things made a little more, the, 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 the hell yeah moments maybe, maybe a little more, meant a little more to me. It, you know, it's it, 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 it's a fun romp. It's a huge amount of fun with some interesting things we could pick holes in. Um, so it, it's, I, am so it made what, 1968 set in the future of about the turn of the century, which is our past. Um which apparently the world is run by the UN, which again is something I brought up when we were talking about um King Kong versus Godzilla. And so it's obviously a thing that was going on in that time that people thought that a single world government was gonna happen. And uh and also a whole bunch of Japanese people who were taking their art direction from Devo. <laughs> it's um with the yellow with the yellow outfits and the bucket heads and things like that. But, you know, you could easily pick holes in some of the model work and and, and some of the acting and the guys in the suits. But you know what? You put that to one side, it's a huge amount of fun. It's got a couple of draggy bits. There's one moment in particular with the laser beam that just seems to drag on forever. But I think it's more... I know a lot of people think, oh, it's just great for that final reel where all the monsters have a big fight with um, King Ghidorah. But actually, I think there's a lot more going on than that. It's, it's, it's fun. It's what these films should be. It doesn't take itself too seriously. No, you'd have to be pretty stone-hearted
1: not to enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's so many things going for this film. I mean, obviously, this is set in a very alternate version of 1999. Um, I have to say that their vision of 1999 is still looks exactly the same as the year it was shot. I mean the fact the other thing that the fact this film has going for its advantage is that in fact we have all five of the Godzilla fathers. Um, so we've got uh, we've got Taka uh, Tisabura, who is obviously the legend, especially in kaiju movies for bringing doing all the model work, all the costumes, uh, all the monster suits. And I mean he would obviously go on to do things such as like Ultrakuu, uh, Ultraman, and we got uh, Isho Honda who. I think when it came to shooting, kaiju movies in particular, really had a grasp of what worked. I mean, again, we get to the low angles. We get to really get a sense of scale, which is sort of key to making these movies work. And certainly we saw it in the likes of uh, the original Godzilla and Mothra. He really knew how to make these monsters look impressive. And when we look at the new Pacific Rim movie, and how the film is being shot. You can really see the importance on where his influence worked and how, especially when we look at the original Pacific Rim movie, because they take a lot of inspiration from the way he shoots these films, so you really get a sense of scale. And suddenly, when I was looking at the new Pacific Rim film, it looked like a Transformers movie, because they're shooting at such a high angle, uh, there's no sense of scale. And here, Ichiro Hondo actually gets to branch out a bit and not just do Tokyo, he gets to obviously shoot uh, scenes in New York, in uh, Moscow, and destroy a few different cities around the world. And we also have uh, uh, Ikofumba and Nakajima uh, also putting in their last appearances on the series. And it's kind of sad when we obviously look at the fact that neither of these, uh, any of these five men are no longer sadly with us. And they really. Are working at the top of the game here with this film. In particular, I mean, Toho, I think, are uh, pretty legendary for how they love to recycle um monsters in particular. Certainly, we would see suits from the Godzilla movies being recycled in the Ultraman series. Often the actors would be inside the suits when they re-spray-painted them, which is says a lot about Japanese health and safety. Um But you mentioned already, I mean, the sheer amount of monsters that we have in this movie. I mean, we've got... Not only monsters from the Godzilla series, so you've got Mothra, Rodan, Anglus, my personal favourite. We got uh, Kumonga, also known as Spiger, which is the giant spider. We also have Manila, God, uh, who still looks like yeah. grey lumpy mash. Um, we've also got, uh, as I said, we've got appearances from monsters that were nothing to do with Godzilla, and we're just part of the turtle back catalogue. So you've got Baragon, who is in Frankenstein Conquers the World. Gorosaurus from King Kong Escapes. Uh, Manda, uh, who is in Atragon. And we got got Varan from Varan the Unbelievable, who, for some reason, never seems out of place. Um, and I mean, I it kind of was a relief, the fact that King Kong didn't show up, um, especially after that horrible-looking King Kong costume that we saw in King Kong vs. Godzilla. And The sheer scale of the amount of monsters featured on the screen here, I mean, it wasn't until Godzilla Final Wars in 2004 that we actually saw this many monsters on the screen at one time. Uh, And somehow it works. It it just becomes this incredibly fun romp where you get to see all your favourite monsters destroying cities, and then finally teaming up together to fight King Ghidorah in this in this epic final battle that for myself ranks as one of the high points in the Godzilla franchise as a whole. Uh, I mean, how did you find obviously the man in the suit work here that obviously the kaiju effects that are at play here? Cause uh, I personally think it is still has its charm. I mean, this is a movie from the sixties and it still looks great. Um, and I think it has a lot to obviously do with, the fact that we've got a genius like Tisburro here doing the miniature work—that it doesn't seem cheap and tacky. Um, it has that same sort of charm that, like the Jerry Anderson productions, like uh, Thunderbirds and Singray have. I mean, um, a- a-
0: absolutely. When I was watching it, I was thinking this—this this feels like a, especially sort of the opening sequence where the spaceship pointlessly goes to the moon and then comes back straight away <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's it got um, it, it's got real echoes of, of sort of the Jerry Anderson um, sci-fi stuff so uh, you know Captain Scarlet Thunderbirds like you say Joe jo 90 things like that um, so the model work again isn't too bad some bits I was really impressed with I, I don't know the name of the monster the one that's like a great big snake attacks a Like a monorail type thing Um, that that that's stuck in the mind, Um, and you know, uh, so there's there's battle. It goes goes to the moon, as I say. It it, it has stuff. It's uh, battles in the cities, or not battles. You know, uh, rampages in the cities, and then you know, and then at the end, you have a whole bunch of guys in rubber suits. kicking the crap out of each other including an, a, another hilarious jump kick which is always one of my favorites <laughs> for one of these things just thinking gosh if that really happened and and as you say it it, it gives them yeah you know, by using the model work by using the low looking up camera angles you get a sense that these guys are great big huge monsters and it doesn't there are occasional points, the jump kick I just mentioned yeah. as an example, which kind of ruins the illusion a bit. But on the whole, I think it, I think it's absolutely fine. You know, this is 1968 or 69. This was made. Um, I don't think what would the alternative have been would have been a Harryhausen-style stop motion.
1: I would imagine so. I mean, that's your only alternative if you're not going to put a man in a suit then your only alternative is to do it in stop motion uh, which again has its problems because there are obviously few masters of of, of the craft. I mean obviously uh, Harryhausen's probably the most notable one of the most notable names in the field but certainly when it came to Japanese cinema it's certainly more popular to put a man in a suit. I mean it's still seen as the way to do these effects. I mean when they were obviously posing doing final wars and they were like saying, Oh, are we going to do CGI effects? And like, no, we're going to do man in a suit effects because this is the way it's always been done. Um, there seems and to then be
0: and a Shin Godzilla resurgence as it was known, although it's CGI now, they did it. So it looked like a man in a suit, you know, it's part of the language of the film. Yeah. So or, or of the genre. So it's, if, if you, as an, as a, audience watcher can get over that and accept that as a, as a convention of the genre, it doesn't become distracting at all. Um, you know, oh, I may have been a little dismissive about these films earlier on, but you know,
1: they're hugely
0: enjoyable science fiction action films, aren't they? And, uh, and a bit like um, wrestling in a way where, <laughs> you know, you pick your favorites and you and you and you follow those people along, and it's exciting to see somebody somebody that you you've seen five films before, or people that you you know. I don't know what you think of Manila, but I hope it's negative. I mean, <laughs> but, but but I can follow Manila through three, four, five films, and to the point where in Final Wars, his character starts making some sense.
1: Um, yes, some. I mean in Final <laughs> Wars we finally we have a we have a character with a gun who doesn't use it <laughs> on Manila. Yeah. It's like finally all our problems can be solved. The thing with Manila though is that in when we obviously like look at Godzilla vs. Destroyer where the baby Godzilla replaces the adult Godzilla, who obviously suffers a meltdown in that movie and become we see the uh the baby Godzilla turn into a full grown Godzilla. Um and certainly when we look at Final Wars, we've obviously had the, the scene of Godzilla final making his peace with Japan and walking off into the sunset with his son. Um, his son being the unlikely peace broker between Godzilla and Japan. Uh, yeah. So God knows how that worked.
0: I like, I, I like that.
1: I, I, I added a bit of heart to the Flash. Um, but, I mean, look, I think the character of Godzilla, I mean, in many ways, I always like to say that Godzilla's the soul of this character really comes across, and I mean, it's really the performance by uh, Haro Nakajima, who was one of the original suit actors for Godzilla. I mean, he took on the role, I mean, he w- played the, the role right through to like, Godzilla vs. Gigan. I mean, he was pouring out a cup of sweat between takes, and I mean, there's those wonderful pictures of him wearing the legs of the Godzilla suit while being poured a a cup of tea between, uh, shoots. And the fact that he brought this, uh, these, so many different moves to this character, who could have just been just, like, we could have just seen just doing very sort of basic grab-and-throw sort of moves, but his dedication to the role, I mean, he strapped explosives to himself and blew himself up on numerous films, and the fact, the, uh, his dedication to the role really brings his character to life even though, as you said, it's just a man in a suit but when we look at Godzilla it's the same as when we look at the Muppets we see it as being this living, breathing character not a guy in a suit um, Oh, I, I, and, and, and I think I could give
0: another example if you've watched the modern Planet of the Apes films Andy Serkis' performance as Caesar yeah it's utterly manufactured but he's brilliant you know, as 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 you know, it's motion capture. That's the equivalent these days of wearing a suit, right? Yeah, I would say. And it's, and and, it's and it's he like... brings obviously he talks a bit, which helps, but um, because we won't mention the films where Godzilla talks, but <laughs> only <Probably> once. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to mention it.
1: We won't but, mention um, Tommy he flies either, but
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> but you know, I you know, I, I think Andy Serkis deserves an equal amount of credit. By bringing to life something which isn't alive. And how many actors can say that?
1: It's very true and I mean all the monsters in this that are featured in this film, they all have their own distinctive personalities and and you you really feel for these monsters. I mean, Angulus in particular, I absolutely adore. Um, he has this stupidly comical scene where he, during the final scene, he grabs over King Ghidorah's ma- neck, uh, one of his many heads, should we say, because is a three-headed dragon, space dragon, and is carried up into the air and dropped from a significant in height, mm. um, and then we see Godzilla put his hand over his face and going, oh my god, what have I got myself into? <laughs> and it's these little humanising traits that we obviously saw being put into, especially in the Shower series, which this falls in, where Godzilla was being made more human, we saw the eyes becoming more Asian, uh, especially in like Godzilla, Godzilla and Sun uh, we saw him doing this little jig on the moon in uh, Invasion of the Astro Monsters and by this point he was very much established as this protector of Earth um, he was gone to as protector even though his idea of protecting Japan meant that he reduced reduce a great portion of it to rubble <laughs> over the course of the film but Certainly, he has a lot of human traits to it, and certainly is very much the case in this film. Um, obviously, with this film being part of the Showerer series, we do obviously have, as you mentioned already, this focus on space travel and aliens, which were very much a reoccurring theme here. And this film in particular, I mean, we have the crew of the spaceship Moonlight SY3, who really play Quite a major role in this, uh, in particular Captain Yambi, whose fiance's mind, fiance has a mind taken over by the aliens, um, and is basically he's trying to find a way to to snap her back into reality. I mean, how did uh, you obviously find the uh, subplot with our with our brave astronauts who spaceship? It's not only able to go into space, but able to fly anywhere in the country it's a remarkable piece
0: of engineering isn't it especially it is. as i say dressed up as diva as a Devo tribute act um <laughs> i think in parts it works i think you have to have some kind of human story in these films um just just to drive the plot along i think there were moments in it it got interminable I, I talk again about the the scene with the laser and just think for god's sake get on with it and also cables won't catch fire in the vacuum of space that's not <laughs> how fire works but yeah again i don't want to keep picking holes in it um i actually thought that the so the the romantic angle so whether the the what's her name the um uh, Kyoko- Yoko gets it gets mind controlled and she becomes some femme fatale who also shows you she never wear high heels on the beach. That was another thing that was a bit <laughs> odd <laughs> and draw attention to it. Um, but it kind of the one thing also that that kind of got resolved a bit early for me. Um, there's a whole sort of bunch of stuff about, about the mind control and the. And the the people that running Monster Island to get under control of the aliens and nothing really, really happens with that. And I felt there was a lot of toing and throwing that didn't really go anywhere. But um we also get Andrew Hughes, who seems I I'm, I'm pretty sure is in one of the um King Kong films, isn't he? Uh as as your token white man (laughs) that's also a scientist i'm pretty sure that's not too far different to what he's been before but he i think he worked a lot in japanese cinema in that time but it's interesting it's interesting to see a world which is so japan centric yeah but there's also this this sort of almost this token white guy in there and not i know there is a lovely bit mate where um they start talking about where they find the things that should control the aliens, and they say in 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 England, and they show a picture of the White Cliffs of Dover with a big arrow pointing at it, <laughs> and then and then in Spain with a big arrow pointing somewhere, and in the. And in the Alps, underneath a sheet of ice, and a giant mountain, and they point a big arrow at the <laughs> big mountain. There's nothing else to see. There's this there's is this wonderfully cheesy bits, and I think that all adds to the charm of it. Yeah, it's it's not po-faced. Some of the um, so I I, I I'll criticise the latest Godzilla film for as much as I in, entertained, it was incredibly po-faced, and some of the other films I've seen can get really quite. They try and be a bit too serious or they spend hours on the um, on the political side of things and have lots of rooms of people debating for hours on things. So this this kind of kept the balance. There's a bit of a sort of 60s, funky 60s thing going on. Um, There's a bit of uh, Anderson going on, as you said, um, and there's lots of monsters. Um, And I think it all comes together in a pretty nice package. With you know, with some, you know, there's a drinking game in there for the silly bits, but I think you'd be hard, you know, you'd be a hard band to say you weren't entertained by it.
1: Oh, definitely, it's it is really entertaining. And as you were saying, when they were talking about the devices that they find scattered around the world, and as you said, we have these wonderful big arrows pointing to stock pictures, and my favorite one being, oh, and this one they found inside a coconut. So like. (laughs) All oh, the places you're going to hide it. Why a coconut? <laughs>
0: I know. I mean, there's, and there's so much of it which doesn't make any sense. Um, I, I, I just don't want to pick up. They, 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 one of the things is, it turns out the aliens are susceptible to cold. So why would they hide it under sheets of ice? In the, How would they have even done that? You know, it's just, it's these incredible inconsistencies, almost as if they're making it up as they go along. Um, but this is Japanese cinema, not Hong Kong cinema, so I would hope there's a little bit more to it than that, but uh, who knows?
1: Oh yeah, certainly. I mean, also, why does Andrew Hughes sound like such an old man? He's such oh my these monsters! It's like, what the hell's going on with his voice? And it's not like he's been redubbed. I mean, obviously in the original Japanese version he's redubbed, but in this, uh, version, the dub version, it's actually his, his actual voice. I don't know what's actually going on with his, uh, his role, but he did actually appear in quite a few, uh, Asian films. I mean, he uh, even turned, uh, in a role as Adolf Hitler in Crazy Adventure in 1965. Uh, we mentioned already that we saw him in King Kong Escapes, where he played a United States, sorry, a United Nations ge- journalist. Um, and I mean, he even turned up in, uh, Tora, Tora, Tora as, uh, the Embassy delegation employee of Japan. So, uh he definitely has has a number of appearances throughout uh, Asian cinema. I mean, I think we've seen we've seen all his uh kaiju contributions though. Um at this point, but yeah, I think if you're if you're looking for a fun kaiju movie, I don't think you can go wrong with this one. Uh this is probably certainly one of the most fun entries in in the franchise. Um and it really took until Final Wars to it to actually be sort of—I don't want to say bested, but uh, give us uh, mm-hmm. something to compare it to, really.
0: Yeah, and I and I think it's going to be the inspiration for the next Godzilla movie from the West, is it not?
1: Yes, I mean obviously, uh, obviously from what we've heard. I mean, we've heard bits and pieces from it. I know Mothra is going to be featured. Um, as well as King Ghidorah has also been hinted, so it'll be interesting to see where they go. Um, that that was but, a bit of a disappointment that Mothra remained a uh, sort of larval
0: caterpillar thing. I I I was kind of hoping some wings would spread or those little twin things would turn up. I always I always love that about Mothra.
1: <laughs> Mothra is a very problematic kaiju creation for myself. I mean, she is yes, yeah, she is one of the few. Female monsters, which is and is extremely popular with uh, Japanese women, which is why she appears uh, so regularly. At the same time, her magical abilities is that she can even sp- in her bu- in a uh, adult form, so where she's essentially just the giant moth. She sprinkles you with uh, fairy dust uh, and creates high wind. And uh, in her larval form, we see here she basically sprays you with silly string. Which it just it, I don't know. It it just it doesn't seem overly impressive, but she has her fans. She unquestionably does. I mean, she has her own spin-off saga for Christ's sake. So uh, Indeed. But I love
0: those two little sort of fairy twin girls that sort of hang around as, as her guardians and um Yeah. That that that's all that's all that that just that the utter weirdness of that I find charming.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, normally she is obviously, um, accompanied by the, by those, the, uh, foot High Twins who act as, uh, so Gardner, I mean, it's the whole focus of, of the first Mothra movie, is the fact that, uh, she goes on a rampage just to get, get them back, uh, when they're obviously, uh, taken by, um, by Jerry Ito's character and, uh, with the idea of putting them in this little slideshow attraction, um, so it was kind of surprising not to see it. But then again, I suppose that they wanted to just focus on the the Colax, obviously controlling the monsters and having them go on this rampage. And the fact that when they're free of that control, um, the monsters obviously just team up together. They they recognise each other's. Uh, and respect each other enough to team up and uh, defeat uh, King, God- uh, King Ghidorah. And I have to say, obviously, during that final fight scene, you can see the scene where one of the actors gets past a little overexcited, and when he grabs out of uh, King Ghidorah's head and throws it down so hard it bounces.
0: Yeah. It, the actual bits where they're really <laughs> plowing into King Ghidorah, do show the suits up <laughs> and the, <laughs> and the, and the, and the wire work and the stuff that might, may or may not be going on. It's, um, well, one, uh, one one's definitely given a good kicking in there as well. And you can, oh, what you, how does one got hurt doing that?
1: So, um, yeah. And, um, I mean, I just also have to uh, mention that we do obviously see, uh, Yuko Kobayashi as the love interest who we mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, there's my childhood crush right there. Oh, really? Yeah. She looks like, <laughs> um. Oh, I'm trying to think who invented Brandon to kill now. Um. Um. Yeah, she looks like she belongs in a Citizen a Suzuki movie. She, she, she does. She's so got that cool. very yeah
0: she she dresses very, very sharp dresser and she's got a sort of a, quite an elven pixie face and um and and the 60s haircut just suits her down to the ground it is um, um. It, it, it's, it's um almost wishes she and she goes from being giggly little girlfriend to femme fatale to giggly little girlfriend again which is a bit of a shame <laughs> but um yeah know, she's a She's definitely one of the more uh, pleasing aspects of the film. Not to get too <laughs> wrong, wrong headed about it, but
1: yes. uh, you're allowed uh, that childhood crush, I say. Yeah. Also, she she, she doesn't seem too impressed with her uh, her fiance saying that he's more concerned for Godzilla than her safety. Oh, that was that, that was awkward. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more concerned about Godzilla.
0: Yeah, it just it just it, it it has a little clumsy the beginning. It, <laughs> it, it 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 sort of takes a little bit of time just to understand the story it wants to tell. But once yeah. it's once it's going, it's fine. Okay. Um. I mean, is there
1: anything else you want to discuss about this one?
0: No, I just want to thank everybody who voted for it, really, because it is a, it is a hugely enjoyable film and it's well worthy of discussion. And you know, whilst it's not my favourite kaiju movie um it's probably my favorite of that that era of the of the more fun tongue-in-cheeky i don't want to call them silly because that's unfair but um of of that kind of era
1: Hmm. for sure i mean it's funny obviously uh, when we when we look at how godzilla is viewed because obviously to the West, um, certainly in the States, Godzilla is seen as very throwaway sort of movies. These sort of like late night uh, monster smackdown sort of movies um, and so kind of very disposable. And in Japan, the honor of being asked to direct a Godzilla movie is the same as they view it as the same as being asked to direct a James Bond movie. Is still considered a very high honour to be offered a chance to direct a Godzilla movie. Um, And I mean, the fact that Godzilla has his own star on the Walk of Fame um, in Hollywood, which is impressive in itself. And the fact that we're still now, we're still talking about these movies. The popularity has never seemed to be wavered, Uh, even now the, the the constantly seems to be a new generation discovering. And while the American films, I think, have constantly almost but just fallen short of capturing the idea of what the Godzilla is supposed to be. It's still great the fact that we obviously have films being made in, the, in his native Japan, uh, that still are uh, continuing to evolve and do interesting things with this character and this world. Um and uh I mean yeah, I I I never understood so people would just obviously dismiss these films as, uh, as just sort of like throw in to I mean, so for myself, this was the entry point into the world of Asian cinema. I mean, these were the films that got me into Asian cinema in the first place. I mean, it was the films and kung fu movies like Bruce Lee films and Jackie Chan. And From there, obviously, my interests obviously evolved into other, other areas. Um, but I think when I look at obviously what appeals to me about it is about I constantly come back to kaiju movies and Godzilla in particular, and so this film has uh, always been where I place where it started. I mean, I'm now coming up on what writing about the last 18 years I spent writing about giant monsters stomping on Tokyo, and uh, I, I for some reason I, this film it just never it's never got old for me. It's a film I loved as a kid and I still love as an adult now. So. But uh, further watching, I mean, what would you like to pair this with?
0: I'm going to go with a competitor Godzilla, and I'm going to go for Gamira, Guardian of the Universe, from 1995. Um, so Gamira is a giant turtle with tusks who can retract his legs and has jet engine. He just to fly around (laughs) yeah um um but and this was a this was like a reboot of of the Gamera movies like say 1995 and it's a huge amount of fun in fact it's probably the most fun I've had with a kaiju movie um because it it Almost a bit like this film. There's a sort of a, there's a bit of science fiction going on. There's obviously a, the kaiju stuff going on, and a little bit of strange mysticism as well. And it's just I, I just found it hugely enjoyable, well directed. Um, but I know that it wouldn't appeal to many. But to me, I, I highly recommend it.
1: Yeah, I mean, Gamera is kind of, uh, is, is the closest competitor that Godzilla has. I mean, for years they've talked about doing Godzilla versus Gamera, and I don't think it's ever gonna happen. Um, but, uh, we can always hold out hope. I mean, Gamera, as you said, he's a fire breathing space turtle who can fly. Uh, he's also the friend to all children. And his films are most distinctly known for being extremely violent, despite him being the friend to all children. Um, the, whereas Godzilla movies were very sort of rarely would include scenes of like violence and gore. We'd obviously get things like such as like Godzilla versus Gamera, where we would get those like nasty slice wounds and blood splattering at the camera. Um, Gamera movies would constantly show collateral damage, to so people being blown up. Um, Gamera himself would be horrifically injured and have these bloody wounds. Um, and certainly, with the the trilogy with God in the Universe started. I mean, it obviously ended with Avenger Virus, which, for my money, is one of my favourite uh, kaiju movies as well. Um, Gamma is is a fascinating character. I mean, I don't know whether his films are on par with the Godzilla movies, but they're certainly a lot of fun to watch. Uh, so that's a that's a really great pick there. I'm glad you <laughs> think so. I was worried then. <laughs> <laughs> um, for myself, I'm still going to stick with Godzilla. I'm going to go for another standout film in the saga, and that's Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. Um, this was released in 1991, and this film actually saw the uh, return of an evil Godzilla, as uh, it's set in set in the again an alternate future, where um Godzilla is basically eradicated from the timeline because these time-travelling aliens turn up and warn the modern-day Japan that Godzilla is going to bring about this great destruction of the world as uh, so they go back in time to eliminate Godzilla from the timeline. So we get to actually see Godzilla as his original form as a dinosaur, and it does feature the wonderful line uh, after the US Navy blow up Godzilla by saying, take that, you dinosaur. Um, this is a really fantastic film, and also features uh, King-, King Ghidorah returning as Mecha King Ghidorah. Uh, not only, again, do we see the evil version of uh, Godzilla, which is a, non- a nice, fun twist, uh, we also get to see the origins of King Ghidorah as well. So it has some fun with the timeline, it uh, throws in ideas of time travel. We get to see um, a cyborg um, who is played by Chuck Wilson, I believe, um, whose amazing ability to run really fast makes him look like he's reenacting Madonna's Rare Live video. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, Yeah, because um, ever is King Ghidorah it's got improved effects. Um, so you when now when they're actually attacking Godzilla, things are actually hitting it, rather than just a lot of fireworks flying metres past Godzilla. Um, and just overall, it's just a really fun film. Um, and features probably some of the most memorable moments of the franchise, and uh, definitely one worth checking out if you enjoy Destroy Monsters. Congrats. I think I will do so. Cool. Um... And this wraps up our uh, another episode of the Asian Cinema Film Club. Uh, thank you again uh, to everyone who obviously voted. And we uh, will, of course, be back in the new year. And, uh, Stephen, I mean, obviously, it's your turn for a pick. I mean, we've obviously had a number of theme rumps. We've had the Halloween draft. I mean, we've obviously had Kaiju Christmas. Uh, we could obviously go and do Kurosawa Kwanzaa or, you know, Mickey March. I don't know what uh, you want to obviously kick off. 2018 with i mean what what would you like to have the uh year kick off with okay so
0: i haven't got a wonderful alliteration to use unfortunately (laughs) (laughs) um something i've probably wanted to talk about since we started doing this um so one of my all-time favorite film actors filmmakers of Asian cinema, of any cinema, Asian cinema in particular is Stephen Chow. So I really wanted to talk about a Stephen Chow film. And I think we're going to talk about The God of Cookery from nineteen ninety-six. Um and it'll give me a chance to talk for a long time about Stephen Chow and lots of other films, but I think it's a great entry point to him, outside of the uh, Shaolin Soccer and uh, Kung Fu Hustle, which maybe most of our audience will be fully aware of.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, Stephen Charles an interesting director. I mean, obviously we had that double header of Shaolin Soccer and Kung Fu Hustle and then he kind of disappeared uh, for most Western audiences. I think there's some people who just assume that he made those two films, but he's had an extensive career, uh, not only as a director but as an actor as well. And, uh, yeah, God of Cookery is certainly an interesting movie to say the least. Um, so I'm looking forward to discussing that one because it is rather fun, so. Um, in the meantime, obviously, uh, if you haven't done already, uh, please follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, uh, leave us some likes or, uh, you know, uh, leave us a rating on, uh, either iTunes or Podomatic, wherever you happen to be listening to this. Uh, the complete archive is available both on our website as well as part of the That Moment In uh, podcast network, which you can find at thatmomentin.com. Um, Stephen, if people want to come and find you, where's the best place as always? Oh, you can collect my, you can, you can,
0: collect, you can get my uh, most of my writings uh, shown on easternkicks.com, which you advertised nicely for me earlier. And for my own stuff, you'll occasionally find something at wayloramblings.wordpress.com
1: or you can get me on the Twitter at, at LPV. Cool. Um as for myself, it's uh of course uh, you can find me uh, writing about video games and movie locations through my uh, movie tourist series at that Uh you can also check out my blog from the to the Hell, uh, which is from the Depty Hell dot dot uh, or on Twitter, which is at and Jones. Um, thank you again, obviously, to my co-host, Stephen, for joining me again.
0: It's a pleasure as always.
1: And, uh, thank you everyone for listening, and, uh, we'll wish you all a very merry kaiju Christmas, and a Happy New Year. And we will, of course, see you in 2018, for the God of Cookery.
0: Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas. Sai anata ka Merry Christmas. Watashi ka Merry Christmas. Santa Claus is coming to town. Santa Claus is coming
1: to town. Wait, don't wait. Don't coming to town. しめ大二愛しいものがいっぱいだよ。おい、たゆ。歌いながら食べるな。ああ、俺の部屋が汚れるだろ。
0: Santa Claus is is
1: coming Santa
0: Claus is coming is coming to town. 他走了他